Uh, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, maybe even as we begin, let's just open up in a word of prayer. Um, Father in heaven, we come to you now and we actually shift our posture. Um, we, we now want to look in your word and hear you speak. Oh God, you are the God who speaks, who, who's living and active and even now teaches and instructs and encourages and, and rebukes and exhorts and builds us up through your word. And so, Heavenly Father, help us to see Jesus Christ. Help us to understand your will and your ways even as we open up your word. And Lord, free me to even proclaim your word uh, to these your people. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, it's a, it is a joy to be with you this morning. Um, if you're in the gym or uh, watching from online or you're here in the sanctuary, it's uh, my wife and I just love being with you um, uh, Foothill Bible Church. It's just a joy to us. And even as um, Pastor Art mentioned, we've been kind of in this very, very strange interim period where we want to go to Dubai but are unable to. You know, the, the world has changed and that's uh, directly affected us. And so we almost compulsively check the news every day. What new thing is happening? What, when will international uh, travel reopen and how will it reopen? And um, particularly, when can we go to India? Um, and, and so we just with many of you are seeking, Lord, what are you doing in the world right now? And how can we rest in you and, and continue to walk in faith? Now, the last two years um, since we've been here, uh, I've been preaching through the book of Philippians. Every time I get an opportunity to preach, I take the next paragraph, I take the next section in the book, and I preach it. And uh, so uh, the, for this morning, I, I opened up to my next paragraph, and it's Philippians chapter 4. And so you can turn there if you want, but as uh, over the last week, week and a half, as I've been studying Philippians chapter 4 and just looking at these next verses, I have been wrecked. I have been um, convicted because I have found myself um, deeply discontent about several things. And the passages we'll see, the subject has to do with contentment, Christian contentment. Contentment is that sweet resting in God's providence. It's that, it's that, that resting in God's will for us and our ways and where we submit to and delight in Him. And yet I found myself several times just, I had to stop, put away my notes, put the commentaries away and just say, Lord, again, I sense some aspect of my heart, some part of my, part of my life, some discontentment. And, and this morning, even as I preach to you, I, I preach to myself saying, God, help me to learn to be content. Now, in Philippians 4, uh, where, where Paul takes up the issue of contentment, it's actually kind of embedded in a wider missionary context, a context of missionary thanksgiving. You know, the Apostle Paul, if you remember, when he went to the, the city of Philippi, he went to a place of prayer, and there, there he met a woman named Lydia. And Lydia, he, he preached the gospel to Lydia, and Lydia's heart, her eyes, the eyes of her heart were open, and she heard the gospel, and she paid attention, and she believed, and she became a Christian. She and her whole household believed and were saved. And then later that week, likely, Paul the apostle preaches the gospel to the prison warden of Philippi, and the prison warden and his family believed the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. They believe, and they become Christians. And through this process in the, in the city of Philippi, the first church of Macedonia is planted 2,000 years ago. Amen? The first church is planted. 
And Paul, having established that church, then leaves Philippi to go to other cities. And in other cities, he goes to proclaim the gospel and to plant new churches, because that's what he does. That's what it means to be a missionary, to, to go and start churches, to make disciples, and, and to raise up leadership. And, and it, he was excited to do it. But what's cool is, is that Paul and that church in Philippi, their relationship didn't end. When he left Philippi, they actually sent him out, and they supported him. And in fact, they loved the gospel so much and the good news of what God had done in their lives through Jesus so much that despite their own poverty, they supported Paul. Not once, not twice, but actually several times they sent money to him as he would go to different cities, as he would proclaim the gospel. And so, I mean, I just can't, I read this, I think about this story and, and the, the history here, and I just can't help but pause and and reflect on our own experience, my wife and I, over many years in several cities trying to make disciples and see churches started, and, and here we are being supported by, in prayer, being supported by, by finances, by you as a church, as a congregation. You know, the church is not this building. This building didn't pray for us. This building didn't support us. This campus wasn't involved in that. It was you, the people of Foothill Bible Church, and so it's like I look at this passage and I think about the story and I just think, oh, I identify so much with Paul's words and his manner. And as you can see, I hope, I hope you just even feel refreshed hearing, in a sense, Paul's words to you, uh, missionary thanks. Now what's interesting is um, Paul, as he's going from city to city, um, somehow loses contact with the church of Philippi, probably because they don't have internet or mobile phones or GPS, or there's no way to really keep in contact as he's going to these remote places, and they lose contact. And, and over the course of uh, many years, Paul continues to do ministry. Now, 10 years have passed since Paul was with them and since Lydia became a believer. 10 long years. And Paul's circumstances have dramatically changed. You know, he's no longer freely going from city to city sharing the gospel and preaching. He's now in a Roman prison. He is physically chained to a Roman guard. He has no access to funds. In a Roman prison, you had to have people come and visit you. They didn't feed you. He is physically destitute. He is financially destitute. He is actually going hungry sometimes. And in this context, while he's there in the prison, somehow the men and the women of the church of Philippi hear about his situation. And they immediately take up a collection. And they send the money by the hand of a man named Epaphroditus, one of their own, to visit Paul. And Epaphroditus comes to Rome. He finds Paul in prison. And he gives Paul this collection, this gift. And, and more than that, he gives Paul news of how the Philippian church is doing, that they're growing, that they're learning, and, and some of the concerns they have. And so there he is, Paul, in prison, receives this news, receives this gift. And so he sits down, and he takes quill or pen, you know, and he, and he writes them this letter, the letter of the epistle to the Philippians. And when he sits down, yeah, particularly in chapter 4, he takes time to, to acknowledge or to thank them for their gift that they've given to him. And yet the way he does it is really curious because he doesn't just do it in a straightforward way, thank you for your gift. Because he doesn't want to seem like he's like money 
uh, manipulated, you know, manipulating, or that, he need, that he's needy, or that he's trying to get cash from them. But he actually takes this opportunity to, to thank them, to teach them about contentment. It's like he couches his gratitude in the language of contentment. And he takes this opportunity, this occasion, to teach them and us what it means to have a heart not fixed on things or circumstances, but on Christ alone. And so if you're looking there in Philippians chapter 4, we're going to read three verses or four verses, um, verses 10 to 13. And so follow along with me. In verses, uh, verse 10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now we see here in this passage, just a few verses, three characteristics of Christian contentment. Three things that mark a Christian who is content. You know, we see here what makes a man or a woman content, or a teenager or a senior saint content. And so follow along with me as we look at the, concern, or the concerns or the cares of, a, of Christian contentment. The cares of Christian contentment. Because a, a contented person has new concerns, new cares. They care about others more than themselves. The well-being of other souls weighs upon them in a whole new way because they are content. Over the last few years, I've, um, I've often talked with my kids and with others that, that, you know, naturally we as humans were born into the world with this, like, solar system mentality, right, where the, the solar system revolves around me, now, you know that's not true. The solar system revolves around the one sun. And there are, in our solar system, over 800,000 asteroids. There are hundreds of moons um, that, that circle eight, or depending on the decade of science, nine planets. And, and those planets all revolve around the sun, that one sun. And yet, actually, for many of us, practically, humanly speaking... We make ourselves that, that center. And so it's my desires, my thoughts, my wants, my needs, my feelings, my hopes, me, myself, and I, right? That's how we are when we come out of the womb. And Paul, knowing that, in this whole letter uh, to the church of, of Philippians, he wants to reorient their solar system. And so it's not me, myself, and I, or you, yours, yourself, but it's actually someone else's concern. Someone else's cares begin to take precedent, begin to circle someone else's interests. And you even see that here in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your, you see that word, concern there, concern. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had an opportunity. Now in the book of Philippians, he loves this little word concern. He uses it 10 times throughout the book. In chapter 1, verse 7, in chapter 2, verse 2, in chapter 2, verse 5, in 315, 319, 4-2, and here in several places he uses this word. And actually, most prominently, look at uh, chapter 2, verse 5 with me. Philippians 2, verse 5. If you turn there, I'm going to take it up in verse 3. I'll read. Maybe read along with me. He says, Do nothing 
from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, right? It's the same word. Have this concern, have this care, have this mindset among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. Paul wanted them to consider others as more important themselves. He wanted, to, wanted them to replace their own mindset um, with, with another mindset, that of Jesus Christ's. He wanted their mind to be not set on themselves, which is just what we do, uh, so naturally, and to have it set on others. I mean, I think about a child. When you ask a child, well, how much ice cream should we give everybody in the room? The child just very naturally, and, and you might say even innocently, says, well, I'll take 13 scoops, and everyone else can have one scoop. And in their mind, that is equal. We need someone to, to flip, to reorient, to retrain our thinking in our minds so that we are concerned for others in a different way. And that's what Paul wants to do here. Paul says, have this kind of mindset, that which was Christ Jesus. Have those kinds of concerns. What kind of concerns? The concerns of Christ Jesus. And you know in that passage how Paul grounds the cares of the concerns of Jesus, who, although he's God, very God, regards equality with God not as a thing to be grasped or abused, but he humbled himself. He emptied himself by becoming obedient, obedient to death even, even death on a cross. Jesus cares for you and I, so much so that he takes upon himself the most humiliating thing known to the Roman world, death on a cross. Paul takes up that same language here in, in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, I am so happy, I am greatly rejoicing because you have revived your concern, your care for me. He rejoices greatly because the, the Philippian church is evidencing this kind of care. They, they show that they have this kind of interest, the interest of Jesus. Paul acknowledges, hey, when you guys collected, when you heard about my need, and, and you brought the, came together, and you, and you put money together, and you sent it by the hand of Epaphroditus, you were acting like Jesus, caring for others. And he commends them. For their care to him. You even see it more in verses 14. Look down at verses 14 and 15 here. Chapter 4. Paul says in verse 15, And you Philippians, yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. It means several times. Not that I seek the gift. Here, here where we see Paul being so careful about money. He's, he's not saying, not that I seek the money that you're sending me, but what do I seek? What does Paul seek? I seek, I desire the fruit, the spiritual fruit that increases to your credit in God's mind or in God's, in God's eyes. And so we see this beautiful relationship where the, the church at Philippi, out of their care and concern for Paul, they send to him Epaphroditus. And Paul now, in prison, because he cares and has concern for them, is writing this letter and he's rejoicing and they're rejoicing and he's rejoicing and they're rejoicing. 
And all of this comes from a heart that is content. From a mindset that is satisfied in what God has done and is doing. You know, we desire so much as people to be satisfied, to to be fulfilled. And in our, our society, our world longs to be fulfilled. And yet, as, as you know, as we know, our, our society, our, our families, um, our, our, the, the fabric of our world in every single turn, in every single opportunity, turns away from God, away from the Lord. So we again, we come to God and say, what does it mean to know you, to be content? You see, a contented person sees Christ's concerns and the cares of others as more important than the cares of self, than the cares of me, myself, and I. The needs of others weigh more importantly on us than our own needs. Now, if this morning you suspect that the world revolves around you in some way, perhaps you have need, like myself, to learn about contentment along with the church of Philippi. And so I just wonder, what cares or concerns weigh upon your heart this morning? What circumstances or situations um, are, are flying at you such that you, you feel burdened? What do you care most about this wor- in this world? If I could pull back the curtain of your mind, what consumes your thoughts? If you have a, uh, if you have a satisfied heart, it's because your concerns are wrapped up around Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ loves. You will be content if you have the mindset of Jesus Christ. As Paul reflects here, you will be satisfied if Christ Jesus sits in that seat of supremacy in the back of your, of your mind. And, and Paul desires, as, as I desire, that you would be satisfied in Jesus Christ. You know, the opposite of, of this is equally true. If your mind is full of the things of the world, your contentment will depend on having or experiencing the things of the world. You know, it'll depend on if you have the next bingeable show or if you have a baseball season reopening or you have the perfectly decorated home or you have that job, that ultimate job, or you have that that next four to six foot swell that you get to find. I, I don't know what it is that produces in your heart elation and joy. I want my heart to be satisfied in Jesus such that nothing can derail my joy. And that's what God wants for all of you. We'll return to this in a little bit when we think about contentment, overflowing in care for others. You know, uh, contentment is one of those um, strange kinds of medicine, you might call it. You know, a hundred years ago, you would see in the newspaper this little ad for, like, this magic bottle. And it will put hair on your head, and it'll cure your, your arthritis in your elbow, and it'll make you an inch taller, and it'll, you know, the kind of thing cures everything, the cure-all. In India, even right now, there, there are several things like turmeric. You know, turmeric, it seems, cures everything. And so if you ask a, a good Indian friend, you know, I've got this cough, what should I do? Gargle turmeric. And if you've got an ache in your elbow, what should you do? Drink turmeric. And, uh, you know, if I've got some skin issue here, what should I do? Take some turmeric. It's like the, the catch-all. Contentment actually is like the cure-all. 
It produces in us joy and gives us a heart of gratitude and and it helps us to to remain calm in in the most difficult situations. And, And we'll see here, it produces in us true, genuine care and concern for others. Now, number two, let's look at the, the, scale, the scale and the scope of, of contentment. What, does, what is the range or the scale or the scope of contentment in, in Paul's mindset? You know, because a, a contented person is satisfied regardless of their circumstance. Someone who is content is not bothered by external situations or, or things that come and, and bear down upon them. The easy, the impossible don't affect that woman or that man who is content. You can see that in verses 11 and 12. Look down there with me. Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need. Again, he's sensitive to the issue of them thinking that he actually needs them. Because why? What's he say? For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul has learned to be content in whatever situation, in any and every and all of these things, content. But what is contentment? What is this word we keep saying? You know, in the first century, there was an entire philosophy or religion devoted to a version of this um, idea of, of contentment called Stoicism. Now, the Stoic The Stoics said, external circumstances and phenomena do not touch me. They do not bother me. My sense of well-being rises above all of these things, above the noise and the clamor. And so no matter what happens around me, I can be at peace or a sense of peace. I will be content. They would say something like, I am not bothered or affected by anyone or anything. And yet the Stoic found this reservoir, you might say, of, of strength from, self, uh, from, the in, from the inside, from self-reliance, from self-dependency, from the will. They would be almost like self-willed happiness, no matter what happens. Now the Stoic used this word, content, or contentment. So when Paul picks it up, Paul actually kind of modifies it. He changes it because he doesn't have this, as we'll see, reliant on the self, on the will, but he actually throws his contentment or his source of contentment from somewhere else, which we'll see in a few minutes. Paul takes this as Christ-reliant resting. He, turn, he takes this, this idea of contentment and says, I have a Godward, God-dependent sense of peace. And so we want to talk a little bit about contentment, what Paul means by what we see about this in Scripture. Actually, there's a, uh, there's a guy, Jeremiah Burroughs. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote an epic book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's epic in its size, vocabulary, and breadth and depth. It's an amazing book. Now, if you're, if you're looking for a book to read um, during these corona days, it's a great book. Pick it up. If you're looking for something maybe a little more modern or updated, here's another one um, called The Power of Christian Contentment. He won't he won't change your vocabulary as much as Jeremiah Burroughs, but he's talking about the same thing, both great books. Jeremiah Burroughs devoted 250 or 60 um, single-spaced, small-print words to the subject of contentment. It's brilliant. He says in page 19, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit 
which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I'll just read part of that again. Christian contentment is that, that spirit, that mindset, that posture that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly care, his decisions, the circumstances that he puts in my life. He says that's contentment, submission to and delight in that which God brings my way. You know, look back at verse 11, where Paul speaks of this. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content Two things jump out of me right away, and they have for a long time. First, it's something that you can learn, and if it's something that you can learn, maybe it's something that you haven't learned. I mean, think about that, that second point. Not everybody has learned to be content. Paul learned it, but that means it's absolutely possible for you sitting here today, be ye a toddler or a senior saint, that you have not learned this yet. But I I just wonder, do you want to be content? Do you want to learn it? Do you want to absorb it? I have good news. You can learn it. Because if Paul learned it, it's something that me, myself, my wife, my kids, you also can learn. Paul learned what it meant to live contentedly. Now, he learned this not from necessarily reading a book. Books aren't bad. But he didn't learn it from a book. He didn't learn it memorizing a set of data or facts. He learned a way of life, a posture, a perspective on, on all the circumstances that he was experiencing. So it's not a what, but a how. He, he learned what it meant to live in a satisfied way no matter what would happen. And if he can learn it, so can, so can we. And I always take such great, such great courage from that, knowing that I can learn it. I just think of Paul. He knew, he knew what Jesus was talking about when Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be, what is it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Matthew 5, for they will be satisfied. Paul began to experience, he learned what it meant to be satisfied in Jesus Christ and in righteousness. Now look back at verse 12. We see here the scope of, of Paul's contentment. We see there are words like whatever, in any and every. You know, we want to pause and just talk about this. You know, Paul knows economic abundance. He knows what it means to feast he knows what it means to have a lot, and these are often financial terms. These are issues of wealth. He knew what it meant to have money. Maybe this was like when he was with Lydia. Lydia, that, that uh, dealer in fine fabrics, she probably had some means. She had her own, her own house in which the first church probably started eating. And so when Paul was with her, he probably ate well. There are several times where, Rome, uh, where, where Paul was with Roman magistrates or Roman leaders, and those men or women probably fed him well. He knew what it was like to feast, and he was content when he was feasting. Now, what that means, just for a second, we have to pause, because for so many of us, all, all of us, you know, we, we live in a society that has more access to more food, more wealth than most societies in the history of existence. We don't even know what it means to feast, because we feast almost every meal. Paul was content not because he was feasting. 
He was content because he had Christ. He was content because he knew who God was. He was content because he was trusting God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition, not because he had a plate full of food. And so we who feast, who have an abundance, we have to constantly remind ourselves, often in prayer right before we we eat, God, this comes from you. We, We put our hope and our joy and our desires not on this feast, but on you, and we trust you. And so he knew, he knew economic abundance. He also, on the other hand, knew economic scarcity, deprivation. He knew lack. He knew what it meant to hunger. He knew what it meant to hunger, not just because he was fasting, but because he didn't have any funds to go and procure food. Most of us have never hungered like that. But we've known people, people near our home in Varanasi or or in Lucknow, who didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. And sometimes they didn't eat because they didn't have food. And so they went to sleep with this kind of gnawing sensation in the back of their stomach called hunger. Paul knew what it meant to hunger. And yet at the very same time, he could say, I am satisfied. I am content. I freely submit to and delight in what God has given me in this empty plate. You know, contentment is easy to get mixed up in. It's it's easy for us as Christians to get it confused with, with several other ideas. And so I just want to take a moment to give you four things that contentment isn't, as we continue to talk about what it is, all right? Christian contentment does not mean that we passively accept bad things, that we just resign ourselves to to terrible things that go on. So if I'm sick, oh, I'm just sick, I can't take the medicine because I'm content, right? Now, that's not contentment. Paul the apostle several times left cities in which he was being persecuted, He said, you you persecuted me? Okay, I'm going to go somewhere else where they're not persecuting me, where they're going to listen to the gospel. When Paul had difficult circumstances, he prayed boldly, God, please release me from prison. And he asked others to pray for him. He was active in his prayers. He expected other Christians to be active in their prayers. So Christian contentment does not mean that you're passive and resigned. Right. Uh, number two, Christian contentment does not mean ignoring injustice or bad things in the world. So when we see sin around us, when we see evil around us, injustice, we as Christians can actively engage and say, no, this is wrong. And we can work to, to, to move things so that, so that those injustices are corrected. So Christian contentment does not mean that we say, well, hey, I'm content. God is good. I'm free of all all this stuff. No, 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 no. Because we are content and we trust God's providence, we can actively engage and and work toward changing the world around us. Number three, Christian contentment does not mean the, the negation or the exclusion of emotions. You know, as if feeling bad is somehow... Um, a non-Christian thing, or having feelings or emotions is, is a secondary thing. Christian, Christians feel happy and sad and angry sometimes, although hopefully biblically so. And, and we, we, have ex- we experience emotion just like Jesus Christ, right? Who laughed and lamented. Who, who both 
sorrowed over the sin of people and, and was satisfied because he, he knew his heavenly father. He, he was the most content, satisfied person ever, and Jesus had emotions. We also have emotions in their proper place. Number four, Christian contentment does not mean the absence of ambition or determination. Jesus Christ was the most determined, focused man ever to live, and he was content. Paul the Apostle was deeply ambitious. I mean, he did some crazy things, and he was satisfied in Christ. And so you and I, when we are content, we, we will still be active and, and have emotions, and we will still be ambitious, maybe having great determination to correct the wrongs around us. We will be engaged with people. It is not a resignation where we chill out. It is an active, um, conscious resting in God's prom- uh, promises and his providence and his character. It's, a, it's Christ's strength in us. Now, when we look back at verse 12, and we see Paul say, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in, there's two words here, in any and every, in any and every circumstance, Paul says. He, he, he shares with us, he gives us his scale, his, his scope, you might say, of, of circumstances in which he is content. In any circumstance? In every circumstance. You know, it's like, for those of you who like to run, those of you who are, you like to exercise, someone calls you up and says, hey, let's go running together. It's helpful to know uh, what does that person mean? You know, what is their range? What is their scale? For instance, if they're an Olympian, if they're a marathon runner, you're going to die. It's helpful to know the range, the, the scale of their exercise. You know, if they say, I like to walk around the block leisurely, I'm in. The scale and the scope matter. What, what's Paul's scale? What is his scope? And to get to there, we want to see what some of Paul's experiences were like in which he was content. And so look at 2 Corinthians with me, 2 Corinthians 11. We're just going to read a little bit about Paul's scale. This is in the context of, in Corinthians of, of uh, some false teachers, and so I'm just going to jump right into the middle of the verse where he starts to describe his own experiences. And I, I wish at some point, you know, as I read this, you could hear kind of in the back of your mind the word content, content, content. For he says there in the middle of verse 23, chapter 11, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety, for all the churches. In any 
and every circumstance, I have learned to be content. What's your scale like, brother, sister? What's your scale like? In what situations are you content? In which situations or circumstances are you dissatisfied? Americans, Californians, we are Southern Californians. We are famously discontent. In the history of the world, we we pursue pleasure and position and power and possessions better than almost anyone in the history of the world. We love our things and our weather, and we love our cool, chill circumstances. If something doesn't go our way, we fix it, or we fight it, or we fuss about it. If our circumstances sour, we sour back. And if something, I mean, think about it, if something bad happens and actually wants to settle down and take root that's difficult in our life, like a four-month unending quarantine, we justify grumbling. We might even throw a verse on it. Consider our consumer culture. Anything we need, we already have. Anything we want, we buy. Uh, we're, We're told every day that the car we drive isn't enough, that the house I have isn't enough, that My body isn't enough. My spouse isn't enough. My kids aren't enough. I I need more. I need bigger. I need better. I need newer. More, more, more. Do not be content. That's what the world tells me. That's what it whispers to you. Our our, our society, our economy is, is built on it. Do not be satisfied. Christian, are you content with where God has you? Are you content with what God has given you today? What what circumstance bears down upon you? What external situation or relationship is messing with your mind? Maybe it's Um, Something financially oriented, like a job furlough, or you've lost your job, or or you've taken on too much debt. Maybe it's some kind of family situation, a a broken relationship with someone, or a family member who, who is alone because of a compromised immune system. Maybe something smaller, like you really, really don't like wearing a mask. Maybe you're the mother of a, a bunch of toddlers who absolutely refuse to sit quietly. And you're just going crazy at being stuck in a house all day long. I don't know. What messes with your contentment? For us, as, as Pastor R alluded to, um, at the very last moment, we had, a, we had our final court date. I'm looking for plane tickets to go in, the late, in late March. And this unknown thing happened to the world. It shut down. And we've been waiting and waiting and uh, we admit, we, I, I struggle with discontentment. I don't like the circumstances that God has placed us in. And I struggle to 
to submit to and delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal in my life. So how? How can I and how can you be content in a truly dissatisfied world? How can you lead your families and how can you be an example to the world of true, peaceable, resting contentment when our entire civilization says, no, don't be content. There are so very, very few in our world who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they are not satisfied. So how? How can we be satisfied? Number three, look with me at the source of satisfaction, the source of a contented Christian. Because a contented person is strengthened, we see, by spiritual power, They are enabled by divine energy to be content. We derive our strength not from the stoic inner will, uh, not from some, some resource within, but from something without, because Jesus himself strengthens the soul to be satisfied. And you see that there in verse 13, right? Paul says, I can do all things or all these things through him who strengthens me. Now, we have to pause for just a moment, right? Because this is one of those awesome verses, those famous verses that's just like classically, epically misunderstood, right? Tim Tebow puts it on his cheeks, and your grandmother did a cross-stitch of it, and, you know, your cousin got it tattooed on her arm. I'm not sure they, they understand what it means. We want to understand what it means, right? Because a few things jump right out at us. First, Paul doesn't say here, I can do all things and anything unilaterally. I can do anything I want. I am superman, superhuman, superpowered, super being. What I want, I get. Tall buildings, I leap in one bound. No, he doesn't say that. Rather, he actually says here, I have the ability, I have the strength to endure all of these things that we've just talked about and wept about. I have the ability, the power to not cave in or to grumble. I have the ability to be content. I have access, he's saying, to supernatural endurance, to superhuman joy, to spirit-enabled patience, that of Jesus Christ. You know, it's not about who has the ability to win the football game or to, to, it's not, to rev you up before the job interview or before you take the exam to, to, to think about it. It's, it's for those hardest moments in life when you lose the game, when you don't get the job, when you fail the exam. You say in that moment, God, I am content. I'm satisfied in you. Though circumstances around me are tumultuous and though all of those things seem dark before me and around me, actually, I am satisfied. I have, I have joy because of what you've done in my life. And so he's not saying I have the ability or power in an unqualified way, but rather I have the ability to be strong, the ability to be content. Secondly, we see here, you know, just in terms of the source of spiritual strength, the source of contentment, where this directly comes from. We see that it's Christ's strength in us. So it's not self-will, 
self-sufficiency, self-dependency, but Christ's will, Christ's dependency, Christ's sufficiency. It reminds me of uh, First Colossians 1.29, where Paul says, for, I, for this I toil, I labor, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is laboring. He is toiling. How? With this supernatural energy of Jesus um, flowing through him. You know, Pastor John MacArthur says, when Paul reached the limit of his resources and strength, even to the point of death, he was infused with the strength of Christ. (laughs) Brother and sister, you have so much strength accessible to you. You have so much power available to you to endure, to endure the hardest, darkest days that may yet still be coming. You have the power to look it in the face and say, I'm satisfied, I'm content, because I have in my blood, in my veins, the blood of Jesus, the strength of Jesus. Jesus who rose from the dead, having paid for sin, atoned for sin. He who made the stars, who defeated death and darkness, who defeated the devil, who right now sits at the right hand of the Father and reigns as king, strengthens me. And he strengthens you to endure. To endure, and it is a miraculous, supernatural power because what Paul has in mind here is you have difficult days coming to you, beloved. And he wants you to look at it and and not to smile in a Pollyanna way. We're not playing the glad game. But to look at it and to know so confidently, so so earnestly in your heart that, that God is wise and loving in his providence in the world, in his goodness, that what he has placed before you in your life is for your good. So we can look at it and say, God, this doesn't come from me. This isn't a strength that I have. This comes from you that I can look at this difficult situation and say, yes, Lord, I trust you. I am content. I just wonder, do you you access this energizing strength of Jesus? Do you know this power that Jesus has for you? I'd say some of you are. Some of you are experiencing this. You have learned in the school of suffering. You've learned through scripture uh, to, to, to trust the Lord in the most difficult situation. And so you love him and you obey him and you follow him. And when difficult things come and the, and the tumultuous waters are, seem to bowl you over, you, can, you, you do smile and you say, God, I trust you though all else fail. And I praise God for you for you are example to me and to my family and to so many here. Yet, there are many, I I believe, like myself, who are still learning to be content and what it means to be content. Now, some of you, some of you have turned classically stoic on me. You know, you you have kind of shut off your emotions. You've kind of retreated into your self, your self-will, your your maybe you, the things that you earn through your um, through your business or you, you in the back of your mind. You just think, I can do this. I can do this. I can I can will. I can rely on what God has given me in myself. And you've 
chosen to depend on what you have, the resources that you have in your heart. And I just, I just say, I warn you, it's not going to last very long. It will crush, crush it. It will cave in eventually. Some of you have, uh, you know, one hand clinging to Christ. You, you, you rest in Christ, your, your salvation and your hope for eternal life with, with God. Amen. And yet, you have a, a, the other hand clinging to some deep disappointment, some deep discontentment, some longing, some expectation you had for life on a day-to-day basis. So yes, you've got one hand trusting in the Lord, firmly um, gripped to Him, and yet the world still has its grip on you. God so desires us to have both hands open to him, trusting and resting in him, that he will give us some very difficult circumstances to help us to rest and to trust and to lean on him. And so I just wonder, where are you? Where are you? Are you trusting him for his providence, for trusting him and submitting to and delighting in his wise care in your life? Are you, have you gone stoic on me? Do you have one hand and one hand? And do you know where you are? Christian, what, what, what holds you back from an unbridled, sweet satisfaction in Jesus in every situation, in any circumstance? Some of you today, no doubt, whether you're, you're here in the room or maybe watching from home, are not Christians. You're here, you watch, and we're really glad you're here with me. Uh, you're welcome, and you're welcome to keep coming. But some of you don't know the Lord. You don't have access to this power, and so you know what it's like to be unsatisfied. And I would just say today, why not today turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him? Turn away from that self-reliance, that, that, that self-focus or self-dependency, and turn fully and wholly to Jesus Christ because he died on the cross and he paid the penalty for sin once and for all. And if you turn to him and trust in him, he will save you. And he will give you a new heart and a new nature and the ability to be satisfied in any situation. Oh, I hope that you want this, that you desire this if you don't have it. Maybe even today, if you're here in the building or one of the other buildings, you could turn to one of your neighbors at the end of the service and say, tell me more about this. How can I become a Christian? Or come and talk to one of the leaders this week. But find, find that satisfaction in Jesus. You know, St. Augustine, you know, 1,500 years ago, said we have been made, because we've been made by God, we will be restless until we rest our souls in him. Oh, that you would come and find rest in God, in Christ Jesus. You know, I want to get a little more practical even as we conclude here because, um, you know, I want you to learn contentment. I want to learn contentment. And so today, I would, just, I would strongly encourage you to actively engage the process of learning contentment because nobody stumbles into satisfied heart, right? We drift into discontentment. We do not drift into peaceableness. And so I want to give you four things to actively engage today. All right, here are the four things. Identify and write down your dissatisfaction confess it to the Lord, plead for Christ's strength, 
and then replace that dissatisfaction with service. Let me just go through that again, all right? Because I know you're like really stoked to get all four of these, okay? Um, First, identify and write down the dissatisfaction. That is to say, today, sit down with the Lord and ask him, God, what am I fighting you on? What am I unhappy about that you want me to trust you with right now? And then write it down. Type it out. You got to get it out of the cerebral and see it. Identify it and write it down, that dissatisfaction. Number two, confess it to the Lord. Confess it to the Lord. Father, I have not been satisfied with this area of my life. Forgive me. And then talk to the Lord about it. Because as you begin to talk to the Lord about this dissatisfaction, this desire, you're giving it over to him. You're entrusting it to him. You are submitting it to him in faith. Confess it to the Lord. Number three, plead for Christ's strength. Plead for Christ's strength. Because you need the strength of Christ. You you don't want to rely back on yourself. You You want him to enable or empower this. So you say, please strengthen me. Oh God, so that I can see what is dissatisfying me and see your strength and how you enable me and trust you for these things. God, give me this power to trust in your providence because it doesn't come naturally. Number four. Number four is often the hardest. Replace that dissatisfaction with service. Replace it. We don't just confess it and then move on because that dissatisfaction or something, something new is just going to come right up. You want to replace it. Spend some time talking with Jesus. Listen to his word. Ask God to give you a greater desire for Christ and for Christ's people than whatever it was that you, that you wanted in that, other, in that other realm. You know, we started with talking about the cares or the concerns of a contented Christian. God wants you, your contentment, to overflow in care for others' well-being, for for what other people need. And so ask God today, how can I love one person this week in a new way? How can I call them or write them or send them an SMS? Or how can I send them my favorite sermon or my favorite praise song? Or, Or how can I even just pray for them right now? Ask God to give you in your mind, in your in your heart, who can I serve this week? And I promise you, if you turn from your own self-reliance and you're relying on the strength of Jesus Christ and you begin to taste contentment and satisfaction, you will want to serve others. It will flow from you naturally. It will overflow overflow from that heart of satisfaction. Uh, When Christ strengthens us, when Christ makes us content, it's not just a, a, a happy face that we walk around with, right? It's a heart that, that really does submit to and delight in his care. And so right now, I just want to finish with a, 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 an old song, an old hymn that talks about being satisfied. Uh, and then you can just listen along. I won't sing it for you. It's called Satisfied. All my life long, I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Feeding on the filth around me till my strength was almost gone, 
longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Poor I was and sought for riches, something that would satisfy, but the dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. Well of water, ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. Hallelujah, he has found me, the one my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies all my longings. Through his blood, I now am saved. Heavenly Father, we come to you through this blood of Jesus and say thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to to bear our sin and shame, to, to show us the way, to bring us access to you. Lord, thank you for giving us even now the strength of Jesus through your Spirit. So to enable us to endure, to persevere, to look at truly difficult, despairing, broken life circumstances and to say, oh God, we trust you. We will be satisfied. We will be content. Oh Father, I just pray for my, my brothers and my sisters here that they would begin to replace that, that, that solar system mentality with the cares and concerns of others because they share the interests or the cares of Jesus Christ. And Father, even now, we just lift our eyes to you and say, praise be the Father, praise be the Son, praise be the Spirit, through whom we now pray, amen.